Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and, well, Scott, it's been a long, hard road, but I think it's time we break up this team. You've killed people, I've almost killed people, neither of us has pronounced Marquis right one time, I just don't know where we go from here. No, but... It's time. It's time to disband the team. But we've got to end on a high note with one last entire rest of this book. All right. So what you're saying is nothing's changing. No, nothing's nothing's changing at all. Um, we just get to give ourselves credit for stopping. Though. Yeah. So if you had to describe this, it would be like putting a glove over a bleeding bleeding wound or something metaphorically yes of course of course, of course. Uh, as you said this is the podcast where you and i eagerly dive into wild Bo's world of annoying patrol captains collapsing therapy teams and alien based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial this week part three of arc six pitch covering chapters 6.6 and 6.7. We are fully now, Matt, into the aftermath of the Fallen War, and we're starting to deal with the consequences of everything that happened during those battles. Uh, these chapters really focus on how our team is doing physically and mentally and and uh, what they're prepared to do to stop the Fallen once and for all, which means it's a whole lot of people just sitting around talking, which I love the shit out of. So a yeah. uh, big fan of these chapters. Yeah, me too. The, this ends up being the kind of stuff that we talk about the most. Uh, yeah. Because we, we tend to move through combat quickly. Um, not that there's not always a lot to say there too, but with the, with with uh, chapters like these, you have to actually stop yourself from commenting on every single line because every single line is like, well, that that is important and means something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a big theme here we're seeing is the idea of compromise, right? Um, what you are willing to do to get the thing that you want. A lot of the characters are, are reeling from the compromises they made during the battle. And then some of them are, are forced up against other compromises. I mean, Rain is trying to decide whether he's willing to make a certain compromise. All of our characters are. And then, and then we learn by the end of this thing that even Tattletale um, is doing a little bit of that. So it's a nice little thread that ties these two chapters together and links it back to everything that was happening before. Yeah, I think that's one thing we're going to be paying a lot of attention to is is Tattletale's character and how I think we may have even overlooked her um, a bit. Yeah, I I would say so. Yeah. Um, all right, so announcements. We we recorded the first Weaver Dice episode this week, uh, last night actually, uh, relative to when we're recording this. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I, I think I think all the players had fun. I certainly had fun as the as the GM, um, and we should be releasing it soonish. Yeah, right before we started this recording, I was working on um, getting those together. So. I uh, still don't know how long it's going to take. Once everything's all synced and together, we're going to have to decide what we're going to cut, what we're going to not. But, Matt, that was a good time. That was a good time. Um, glad. Definitely some growing pains as we kind of uh, all learned the game and our characters and kind of settled into what we want our characters to be and how we want them to act. Um, we ask for your guys' patience as we're figuring this stuff out. Um, I think it's still entertaining. I think it's going to be a good time. But... Yeah, there's definitely growing, definite growing pains. Yeah, growing pains can be entertaining to watch too. I think so. I think so. 
All right, so community spotlight where we read what everyone wrote in last week's Reddit thread. The discussion question from last week was, um, when the bad guy is shitty enough, it stops being revenge and starts being justice, which is what Cradle said. That's kind of his philosophy. Uh, and the question was, is Cradle right? Discuss. Um, so a lot of you focused on this question in context of Cradle's actions and the cluster's general desire to torture Rain to death. And you rightly pointed out that due to the excessive nature and the torture, uh, that it could probably never be argued to be real justice. EXE JPEG uh, Windows Movie File uh, points out, there are exceedingly few and unlikely reasons where torturing a criminal to death is somehow more of an act of justice than just arresting them and incarcerating them. Yeah, and uh, Asgar Zeigel, I think that's how you pronounce that, agrees, adding that the cluster capes are... Uh, really fascinating villains for the story since they are specifically people with past trauma who got completely consumed by it. If the story of Ward is one about moving past slash learning to live with your trauma, Rain's cluster mates are the ones who didn't make it. While the misfit toys show how damaged people can support each other in a positive way, the cluster is on the other side of that coin. And that's a really fantastic uh, observation there that they, they represent the failure case of this recovery um, thing we've been talking about throughout the book so far. Yeah, they're a good foil. Mm -hmm. Many more of you focused on the idea of justice and revenge as terms in general, uh, which made us happy because this is what we were going for, I I think. There's no real clear definition for these terms uh, that everyone's agreed on. They're basically defined differently by different societies, so actually measuring them in any kind of real tangible way is almost a fool's errand. Uh, But we do it anyway because it's it's fun. Uh, My favorite part about all of this uh, is that our discussion question actually caused some uh, discussion, which is uh, kind of the point of them. So, yay. Yay. Okay. Yeah. Um, first up this week, Bisexual Punch Party points out that we actually have a great mechanism in our society to dodge this whole revenge versus justice question. We have the law. Um, they say there's a reason, reason you have a jury review the facts of the case and apply them to the law rather than have a grieving father dole out punishment for his murdered daughter. The state acts as both a mechanism of redress and removes responsibility for punishment away from the injured party and onto itself, sidestepping the potential for a cycle of violence and retribution. Many people agreed with this general sentiment and the, and the idea that the law or any kind of institutionalized legal system um, formalizes this idea of and justice and bolsters it with checks and bal- balances to make sure we are not unfairly doling it out. However... Some people also pointed out, uh, both Balu and Negation444 pointed out that law is not inherently justice. It, it can be, but also Balu points out an unjust law can exist, therefore a law cannot possibly be inherently just, nor can the enforcement of that law or the punishment given out for breaking that law. So... While the law is a perfect is a good system, it is not a perfect one and is not always just. And I liked I liked that there was a lot of back and forth conversation on that, and I liked seeing that a lot. Yeah, and I like this this related comment uh, quite a bit from Hobo Demon, who basically says, um, "No, as they define justice and revenge as fundamentally incompatible descriptors based on different levels of meta thought. To them, the primary goal of justice is to alter behavior." Whereas revenge has more to do with a, a shallow view of, of a meta ethics of human interaction and implied game theory, and and the the quote is uh, they're going to be 
there's going to be some kind of correlation on the ground level between elements of, of both, um, but they aren't definitively linked. And th that kind of spawned me to have a, some some thoughts of like revenge is, is like the 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 individual's execution of trying to um, balance the scales and, and get, get some kind of um, um, per personal justice. But but when you make it a justice system, it's not for the individual. Actually, it's for the society. It's the purpose of a society-wide justice system is to basically avoid collateral damage. You know, you, you've got a you've got a criminal who's done some bad thing. The point of the, of the justice system is to punish them, but not punish them so badly that there's going to be further collateral damage to the society at large, um, and and which really has nothing to do with whether it makes the victim feel better. Like it, it just has to make the victim feel better enough that they don't seek vigilante justice, um, which is a pretty pretty low bar. Um, so I, I I like that comment from Ho Hobo Demon a lot. Yeah, that was great. Um, and then Kyrgyzstan swoops in. To advocate for the devil here, Matt, and takes the opposite side that the most people answering this question said and said, sure, Cradle's right. Uh, they argue that once you've established that the wrongdoer did indeed do the wrong and deserves punishment for it, the meaningful distinction between revenge and justice seems to just be one of proportionality. Justice is the delivery of what is due, revenge and exacting of what a victim believes is owed. So revenge could often tend to go further in punishment than justice, which could be problematic. However, they also argue that when a crime reaches a point of being so heinous that it boggles the mind, you end up reaching a point where no practical punishment is enough to balance the scales. A human being has only one life to take after all. Since the wildest revenge fantasies of Cradle regarding what he feels is owed could still never come close to what justice would argue is due for so terrible a crime as Reigns, Revenge-like cradles could therefore, in essence, become the closest thing to justice that is humanly possible. And this is a, a pretty quick summary of, he wrote a, a very long uh, exploration of this whole idea. And this is a very well-argued <laughs> position. Um, it, it relies on some assumptions that I, I'm not sure if I agree with, but... If you if you accept that the assumptions are true, this is very well constructed and very well argued. And I found myself going like, yeah, I guess I guess that does make sense. Like, it's funny because I, I viewed it as like almost a reductio of the assumptions because you're like, well, yeah, like I believe one of the first things you, you just said was, you know, you've established that the wrongdoer did indeed do wrong and deserves punishment for it. Um, that's that's an assumption already that they deserve punishment. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, like we, we, uh, you have to, as a society and an individual accept that the purpose of, of the justice system is punishment rather than, um, you know, p preventative or uh, rehabilitative justice. Um, so that's, yeah. that's already a big assumption that we, we, at least we give lip service to the idea of, of rejecting that, even though I think in practice, we probably do treat it more as, as pun punishment. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and, I think I think the death penalty as a whole seems to exist as a specific form of punishment and not like it's definitely not a rehabilitation. Um, yeah. And, and also the, the, the assumption that justice is the delivery of what is due. Um, it, it's like, well, you, that that's not how I don't think that's how the courts treat it, really, mm -hmm. like like. Like what? What is due to someone whose loved one has been killed? 
you know, you, you that's that that question doesn't even make sense. You can't give them anything, right? right. Like it it doesn't it doesn't help them to to punish the person who did it. It might make make yeah. them feel a little little bit better, but like that's the characters in this chapter actually go into a good dialogue about this idea that like you can't you can't wipe out the bad by doing good and right. so this sort of calculus of, of balancing punishing someone enough that this cosmic scales are balanced is just incoherent yeah this this um yeah it, it almost seems to define justice as the eye for an eye method right that yeah um if you kill one person you should be killed if you kill 50 people well, we can't kill you 50 yeah. times, so get I guess... That, yeah, get that guess, machine from Princess Bride. Right, right. But I guess torturing you as long and terrible as possibly is almost as close to killing you 50 times as we can get, and therefore becomes justice if you define justice as an eye for an eye. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think with any question, this comes across with a certain level of assumptions and, 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 and definitions for what these things are, which is basically required to tackle this question. And no one is going to have quite the exact same definition of what justice and what revenge are. Um, but it was a pretty fascinating discussion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks everyone who participated in that. Yeah. Thanks so much. So regarding the general discussion in the subreddit, uh, we saw a lot of really good threads uh, over on, on the Reddit this week and, and today that we wanted to, to pick out. Um, and draw attention to the first was called uh, "So I Want to Talk About Creepy Kid" by Zalk Zalk, uh, and it's really it's a, it's a really good analysis of Chris's character, especially as he relates to Kinsey. Uh, and I think the thread is worth checking out. We spent way too much time on the discussion questions, so I don't have time to really yeah. go into this. But uh, um, we'll, we'll leave the link to the show notes so you can go check out Zalk Zalk's thread. Yeah, um, there's also another one on there that we wanted to point to everyone. Uh, it's called Trauma's Ability to Involve, Evolve, a Rising Theme in Ward by Vice Versailles. Versailles? Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go with the French pronunciation there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it basically just goes into how we've seen powers and therefore trauma change and evolve over the course of Ward so far with a lot of our central characters and, and how that could possibly fit into the book's uh, major themes, or at least what we what we think the themes are at this point. Um, again, we don't have time to really dive into this thing and talk about it, although we absolutely could. But uh, you know, just just we'll put the link in the show notes. Go check out these threads. Go read them. Go contribute to them. It's it's some great discussion. Uh, you guys, you guys are really smart. Yeah, like it's great. Thank you for everyone, everyone for doing uh, this. The great analysis that you guys do. It's, yeah, we, it's wonderful. We probably don't mention enough that, that the the fact that you guys interact with us, you know, makes this makes this show better and gives us ideas and things to talk about, things to focus on that we wouldn't in a vacuum. So absolutely. So, so really, yeah, we, we do appreciate it. All right. So we move on into chapter 6.6. And this chapter opens on a truly awesome visual. The fallen rabble are huddled in the middle of the road across from Narwhal, who's surrounded by a phalanx of cutting force fields with battle angel Victoria hovering over her. Victoria's position as the centerpiece of this scene, the crown of this visual, is almost an afterthought in her stream of consciousness. Yeah, I like that a lot. She's she's hovering over it, but the, the focus is not on her because there's Narwhal there standing like a badass and i i like that we kind of see as things here are wrapping up in this immediate conflict she's kind of like taken a step back relinquished a little bit of uh agency to the actual authorities the 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 actual guys are here now the wardens are here and and these guys have 
legitimate authority in, in what's happening going on um, versus her team that was really just authorized to come in and help with this immediate threat. So we kind of see her start to back off naturally. And, and I, and I, I, I like that we, we kind of see that just by how she's positioned and just by who the attention is on. But, but it's not entirely Matt because Narwhal explains to all the fallen that if they surrender, like um, they'll get to go back to their homes and, and the authorities will be there kind of making sure that the transition back to the area is peaceful and, and safe and healthy she uses the word healthy and uh victoria as as narwhal is saying this thinks and will provide some resources to anyone that wants out for good i thought i hope that pans out and so she doesn't really specify what the wheel provide the resources means here uh, my interpretation of this is she's talking her group specifically i think you might have a, a slightly different one um but I think this is really interesting. It, it, to me, it shows that Victoria is starting to think about what the team will do, what the, what the, the function of the team will be when this whole thing is over, when this whole thing is wrapped up. And I think I draw this out because it's going to pretty, pretty majorly contradict with Sveta's interpretation of where the team is at and where the team is going to go at the end of the second chapter we're talking about tonight. And I think like we're kind of setting up that Victoria is maybe looking forward a bit. And then the more she learns about the state of her team members, as we go into this thing, the, the less optimistic she becomes, the more she's kind of drawn into some of the, the more pessimistic viewpoints on how the team is doing. And uh, I think it, that that could be what we're specifically trying to draw out here at the beginning of this chapter. Yeah, I think that's really interesting how you interpret the we uh, to refer to her team specifically. When I read this the first time, I definitely parsed it as her using we to just refer to the good guys because she she just thinks of herself as like part of the great force of heroes, um, and and so I didn't I didn't give it a second thought really. But it, I I think it's quite possible uh, that she is that she was kind of intending on providing these like like uh almost uh human resources type type uh opportunities to um to the fallen who wanted to leave and i i just don't know if they're set up to do that especially now yeah so. yeah and, and it, i i your interpretation could absolutely be correct and and is possibly more likely um but I don't think that necessarily contradicts what I said, though. I think e even so, even if she was using like the royal hero, we um, mm -hmm. right. she's still she's still future thinking. She's still thinking, what can we do? How can we help next going forward? Um, not fully, I, I think, comprehending the the state of her part of the we yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll just have to see. Um. So yeah, tattletale. Oh, yeah, no, it's one. Sorry, one, sorry, one more thing. Uh, I, I wanted to point out that the first piece of spoken dialogue we have from this chapter is Narwhal saying it's over, um, and things are winding down. These two chapters are in aggregate like a resolution to the the climax of the Fallen War, but we kind of know almost right away that the idea of it's over is probably not really accurate. That 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 we're we're establishing these words and then almost immediately going to contradict them kind of like that joke at the beginning of the episode we're going to have someone else later say like this is over um except we have to do this other thing first so <laughs> yeah so tattletale calls victoria uh interrupting the standoff 
and Tattletail offers to help Victoria if Victoria will help her. Uh, she's offering help from March, from Prancer, um, j just uh, in exchange for them releasing Cradle. In, in the middle of this dialogue, Tattletail admits a bit about how her power works, truthfully telling her that she can't figure out March. Yeah, so first, immediately after we have Narwhals, it's over, line, we have Tattletail swooping in here to confirm that it's not, it's definitely not, um, it might be over for these people, but the war, the battle is not over. Crowley's people are heading to a populated area and are probably going to do some bad things, and if if this group wants help dealing with them, they're going to have to deal with her. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about Tattletail revealing a bit of her power here and how huge that is and i think the text like goes out of its way to emphasize to us to just to just in case you guys forgot in case you forgot from from worm how closely guarded secret her her the true source of her power was um let's remind you of it by having victoria think that that was more information that i'd ever had about tattletale's power and its limitations um so this person that hates tattletale and has been a thorn in her side for so long that's the, the, what she just revealed to her just about the fact that um, I think what was it that sometimes uh, if she doesn't get a reading, it means she's asking the wrong questions or something um, is more than she's ever known about how her power works. So right. that is a that is a big deal. Yeah. And, and we and we know that she's being honest. Right. Um, which Victoria doesn't necessarily know. But yeah, um, it, it's it's very interesting. And, and this is. You know, for some time we've been getting increasingly more tattletale beats, um, but this is this begins to paint a picture of what she's thinking with regards to Victoria and and her team. Yeah, I mean, like we said, her power is probably her most closely guarded secret. Right? It's half of her ability to manipulate people relies on them not knowing how her power works, not knowing how much of what she is saying is. Stuff she gleaned truthfully from the use of her power and stuff she's just making up. So so why she's letting this slip here is important. And she claims it's a gesture of good faith. It's, it's what she says to Victoria. I'm I'm showing you that I am in good faith here by revealing my power, which absolutely could be true. Uh, Victoria says, no, it's probably just another manipulation tactic. And like you said, Wild Bo is, is, is relying on dramatic irony a bit here because we know Tattletail is telling the truth. We do. We know that. This is, this is a true limitation of her power. I, what I want to do is I want to take this and I want to circle back to this at the end of our second chapter tonight and talk about how this was kind of preparing us mentally for what is revealed at the end of that chapter because I don't think it recurs to you at the time of reading it here, but there is a a sort of like reckless desperation masked in overconfidence here in Tattletale uh, that, that it, and it culminates in this kind of willingness to betray her weakness to someone else, to someone who doesn't even like her that much. So let's just kind of put a pin in this and, and come back to it at the end. Yeah, as much as I want to talk more about Tattletale right now, I, I agree. Um, this isn't quite the time yet. Yeah, yeah. I also want to say here that we have another indication from Tattletale that March is a worrisome individual. Um, we get the story about how she's working with these uh, this cluster where her one of them went absolutely nuts, and it's just like more indication that hey, um, even even Lisa's not sure like involving March would be a great idea. Like we, we, she'd be a great asset, but maybe more of a headache than she's worth. So we're just getting these, these beats about how like, 
hey, March might be troublesome, and we have to remember that Rain still owes her a favor after her help here. So we, we, we're we moving on from this conflict, but we've got those other ones off in the distance. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, she's, she's just uh, off enough to make us really concerned. So in, in the background of, uh, of this phone call, Luxie triggers her mega flash trap, uh, which, which has sort of been Chekhov's gun in the background for a while, where we knew they had this yeah. trap, this, this uh, Kinsey-based trap, uh, and it blinds all their calcitrant fallen and kind of breaks their, uh, their defense. So you could say the demons are, are blinded by the light? <laughs> blind, blinded. Blind. I'm sorry. Let's just move on. Okay, so we cut to Victoria showing the data that Tattletail sent her to uh, uh, to a couple of the other patrol block uh, captains, uh, Gaiman and Marshall. Uh, Marshall is extremely skeptical and challenging to deal with. She doesn't want to waste resources following up on a, quote, wild, juice, uh, wild goose chase or a trap. Uh, just generally, she rubs Victoria wrong and um, is is kind of a very irritating character, actually. Yeah, and, and look, we're on Victoria's side here, absolutely. And we know that the Fallen are never going to abide by this live and let live strategy. Like, it's just not going to work. Like, these guys are dangerous. They're going to hurt more people. That is a fact that Victoria is trying to communicate and that we know is factually true. But I really think it's fascinating to dive into what starts off as this kind of mild annoyance with Marshall and goes down into this like conspiracy rabbit hole with Victoria, where she's like trying to connect dots and seeing that this person is actually secretly working against me. Because if you remove the conversation they're have, they are having from the information we know and just look at it objectively, it's kind of insane what, what she's communicating to them here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wait, why don't you go through that for us? So it's like, okay, Victoria's like, I got some information about the Crowleys that show they're going to go to this place and we should go fight them. Okay, where'd you get it? Okay, Tattletale. And you trust this Tattletale? <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, so so how how do you know the data's good then? Well, I got a, I got a feeling about it from from this this person that you don't trust. Yes. Also, uh, I corroborated it with this 11-year-old over here. Okay. <laughs> Why do you think they're going to be violent? Because our records show that they're not violent. Uh, well, because they shot us with, with guns after you came into their territory and invaded their town. Y- yes. So, so let me get this straight. You were part of a force that walked into the ter- territory with the goal of destroying them, beating them up, arresting them. They fought back and have now fled the scene. You only know where they're going because you got some information from another villain who you don't actually trust. You're not actually sure why she's helping you, especially since you two have historically not gotten along, but you're okay with it because your child Tinker says it's probably accurate. None of our historical information shows that these people are that historically violent, but another child on your team claims that he can smell the gunpowder that proves that they actually used guns, even though he's the only one that can smell them. So you want us to mount an offensive against a team we don't know is violent using data we don't know is accurate that leads to a place that may or may not be a trap. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's the conversation that they're having. That's it. 
Um, and again, I completely agree that Victoria is on the right side of this argument. We were there. We know the thing she's saying is true, but it's not too far of a stretch to see the other side of the story, to see why they'd be a little hesitant on this stuff. Yeah, and also it just seems, kind of reading between the lines, that, that the the resources of the good guys are stretched pretty thin here, and it may not be, like, practical even. Like, even if they did believe Tattletail's intelligence, mm-hmm. they can't necessarily just say, like, all right, everyone, we've been fighting you know, for, for hours and, and we've, a lot of our personnel are taken up basically like processing and taking into custody a large number of fallen captives. Um, but now let's all move to another location and chase down some people and fight them. Like it, it it just seemed, I I don't know, perhaps I'm oversimplifying things, but like, I, I definitely, despite the fact that you're in Victoria's head, you can sympathize with the, uh, the, the, um, you know, the XPRT um, um, leaders yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. So like you, like you indicated, Victoria, for her part, is suspicious of Marshall, even going so far as to wonder if she's a fallen sympathizer. Yeah. And this is like, I don't want to rag on Victoria here because, again, she's correct in in the desire to want to stop these people. But this is where I think the desire to do a right thing for her, like, leads her down this this rabbit hole. She decides that because this person's patrol block is stationed in the town that's next to where we are, and because she's being completely reasonable, she's probably like a secret sympathizer with the bad guys or maybe even a spy of the bad guys. And no real indication other than geographical location and she's not on my side. And and that's it. And she like constructs this whole thing where... Yeah, she's probably I wouldn't be surprised if she's if she's just a fallen sympathizer. Yeah, like meanwhile, Victoria should be going to a hospital immediately. Yes. Like she she shouldn't be like, "All right, I need to go do more combat." It's like, "No, you're you're probably going to get a horrible infection um with your extremely bad flesh wound that you are just ignoring and even though it appears to be interfering with your your basic movement, um you're just you're just going to walk it off, I guess. Come on, Victoria. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Take better care of yourself, Victoria. Yeah, it's self-care. Almost like, this is a, almost like this is a recurring problem with you. So uh, Captain Bash, Captain Bash, uh, which she makes a, a big deal out of the name, uh, arrives and gets the skinny. Uh, Gilpatrick quietly backs up Victoria. Good guy, Gilpatrick. Yeah. Uh, and the, the text says, The PRT director in my hometown had confided in me at one point that she'd been nicknamed Lady, and from her lack of grace and finer manners, it might have been the same sort of thing. So she's referencing how Captain Bash doesn't seem like he'd be named Captain Bash, and of course, Pigot doesn't seem like she'd be named Lady. But uh, I I love that callback, because we, we remember from her interlude where she's um, entering Ellisburg to, uh, to meet uh, um, Nilbog for the first time. Uh, that her her code name was Lady. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great one book late Pigot burn. Yeah, <laughs> by by Victoria here. It, it didn't feel like a burn to me, but uh, but it was no. I it, mean, it was a good reference. Yeah. It's not like I'm exaggerating, but yeah, lack yeah. of grace and finer manners. It's yeah. like accurate, accurate. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So eventually, Marshall gets under Victoria's skin, and Marshall says, 
uh, so, so so like she's she she recognizes that she's pissed off Victoria, and then she kind of like immediately changes her tone and goes, "It's okay. This is how I function. Ask anyone who works under me. I'm asking the questions others are going to ask after we're done. Why do this? Are we sure? Wasn't there some indication it was a trap? Succeed or fail, they're going to wonder, and I intend to have the right answers for them." Look, these people kind of suck, <laughs> and I'd be lying. If on my first read through of this chapter, I wasn't like totally on fuck this Marshall person uh-huh. uh, by the time we got to this point. But again, this is not the most unreasonable way to approach the situation. And this kind of strikes me at just like how little Victoria has had to actually deal with like the bureaucracy side of heroing. Like she always kind of had her, her, her team or her family to handle it. Um, the Victoria we saw back in Worm was always like the punch first, ask questions later type of person. So she might just not be as up on how all this, this, this hero bureaucracy actually works. It's just, it's just not, it was not her focus. She just wanted to throw dumpsters at people and, and she's having to, she's having to deal with that really for the first time. It's interesting that she kind of resents this, this woman for being good at politics. And and it's like, it's like uh, politics is the kind of thing that Victoria should want to be better at mm-hmm. with, with her whole warrior monk approach of, of like thinking through and taking calculated moves. You know, you, you have to, you have to understand politics so that you're, you're actually making the right moves when you're doing that. Yeah. Not that Marshall is perfect here because they, uh, they called Victoria a wrecking ball in front of her. Yeah. Um, you can ask the tough questions without being a total dick. Right. And I think they kind of fell over into being a dick sometime. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, Victoria leaves this conversation uh, without the support she was looking for. Gil Patrick defends uh, Marshall a bit to her as someone who knows how to communicate and how to keep her ass covered, which he thinks are important skills. Yeah. So what do we think about all this? So we have this antagonistic former PRT member working as as basically like a representative almost of the the non-powered military force in the world. Let's call it, I mean that's kind of what the closest thing the patrol block is, right? They're they're people without powers um and they basically have the authority to to intervene in situations like this. Um they're ruffling Victoria's feather, but Gilpatrick while defending Victoria is also kind of defending them here the saying that like uh marshall is a person who is is good at her job of catching bad guys she's good at it that's what she does but again (laughs) we know victoria is in the right here we know that the thing she's trying to convince them to do is a thing that needs to be done because the fallen are a serious threat they are going to probably get violent again or at least we well actually that's I hadn't thought about that. Do we, I mean, do we really, we, we are, that's a lot of assumptions. We're assuming that they are 100% going to immediately be violent again and need to immediately be stopped. That might be an assumption that, that we shouldn't be making. I I think that due to what, like what we as the readers know about Tattletale, the way Tattletale is behaving suggests that she at least really believes they're going to do that. Sure. Um, so that, that's, that's where I go. The, again, that isn't a certainty, but uh, it seems seems likely to me. Uh, yeah. I was I, I, I'm uh, I'm in this position of of thinking about this whole section of this chapter where Victoria is talking to these 
PRT, you know, I, I'm, I keep slipping up and calling them PRT, uh, that these patrol block, block leaders, um, it's, it, Wildbow never includes things that are not like necessary or, 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 th- you know, tied into what he's trying to communicate, uh, on a, on a broader level. So what, why do we have these interactions with these unpowered people who are, who are not the decision makers per se, but, but the leaders, um, of the patrol blocks and, and some of them, I guess one of them, I guess a uh, bash is actually something of a decision maker, you know, because, because all of this could have been conveyed with like, you could have just skipped that scene and had Victoria be like, you know, wow, we didn't get the support we were looking for, you know, but, but instead right. we get a, we get a, a rather detailed scene involving all these personalities um, and an understanding of characters who are better at politics than Victoria and have completely different modes of dealing with people that rub her wrong and that actually make her angry, get under her skin. She, she loses her temper a little bit, you know, um, and it kind of basically storms off frustrated. And my takeaway is that, number one, I think we're probably going to be seeing more of this as a theme of, of Victoria kind of butting heads with people who have a different style than her and perhaps her learning that, that there's a better way to go about things. Um, and, and also perhaps her losing her temper, uh, in these situations because, uh, it doesn't happen often, but she's, she's not actually the coolest person, the most cool headed that is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely an old part of Victoria that she is actively trying to improve. That's part of why she's trying to channel this warrior monk thing, because she doesn't want to be the type of person who loses her temper. But we do see that, that dealing with this kind of stuff drives her there. And I like to look at this. Um, and again, you don't know how much of this is intentional because we're like kind of artificially chopping this arc up based on which days the chapters come out. But I think this interaction serves to me as kind of a nice foil of Victoria's interaction with Tattletail at the end of this chapter uh, of this week's chapters, um, because she's both dealing with people that are kind of, annoying her and rubbing her the wrong way. And she gets pissed off at both of them. She gets pissed off at this person and she gets pissed off at Tattletail for different, but similar reasons. And, and I think it's interesting to, to look at those two sides, uh, comparatively. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a lot to say when we get there. Yeah. So for now, uh, as she leaves, she leaves the, 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 uh, XPRT folks, she rejoins the rest of her team and we touch base with everyone. Chris is happy that he got to do, Cape stuff. Uh, everyone compliments Kinsey's violent assault against Mama. Everyone's just <laughs> so happy. Everyone's doing great. Um, there are a lot of uh, quick, fast dialogue interactions between the team at this point. And while I, I don't think I think I feel the need to like single out any in particular, I just wanted to point out like the team back and forth has has gotten really good. Um, we talked about this with the undersiders back in in Worm that that we had such a great understanding of these characters that the dialogue with between them could move quickly, and it didn't need to backfill any of like the reasoning or understanding b- behind why people were saying certain things to them, other people in in quick conversations. And I don't think we're quite there yet with the toys. Um, I think there's still too many mysteries behind some of them to know a lot of their motivations, but we're getting there and I'm starting to see how that would look like. Uh, there, there's this whole back and forth with Chris and Kenzie bickering. Uh, Sveta kind of plays the mom, Victoria, the, the constant coach uh, telling everyone they did super well, even if um, 
some of them don't agree with that assessment. Um, we're starting to get our real first hints of, of issues that are going to come out in later conversations. Um, it's just a really good dialogue scene between all these characters. Yeah. So and there's going to be another one soon, I think. Uh, yeah. For now, Victoria leaves this little gathering to meet with Capricorn and Ashley tags along with her. And Ashley has something she wants to say. You said everyone did a good job. I didn't, Ashley said. She walked with her hand clasped around the injured portion, but the posture looked defensive. I really liked how you handled things with Gilpatrick, turning yourself in, asking him if you could join the fight. They're the right moves. If I end up imprisoned and unable to call her, someone needs to look after Kinsey. Um, and and I, I, I love this because it's, it's such a, it's such a moment where like you're, you're on the fence about Ashley in a lot of ways. I think up until this moment, you, we, we've seen her, you know, we saw her snap, we saw her reaction to that, we saw her turn herself in and then play play things very, very carefully. Uh, after she had turned herself in and and now we see like she's her heart is completely in the right place and she's just concerned about what's going to happen with Kenzie she's sort of almost resigned and at peace with what's going to happen to herself and that like this in this moment for me I just was completely won over to Ashley not that I wasn't mostly already but it was kind of sealed the deal yeah and she's audibly admitting that she fucked up. And, and I think we've been drawing conclusions around that for a while now that, that based on her reactions, we can see that Kenzie fully understands, uh, the, the, the seriousness of what she did, but it's nice to like, hear her like audibly consciously admit it to someone else, to Victoria. And I think <laughs> this interaction is so great because Victoria immediately goes like the coachy glass half full route. Um, like, yeah, okay that you messed up but look here's the good things you did you you turned yourself in you asked him if you could join the fight those were the right moves you messed up but you made the right moves Ashley kind of completely disregards that she ignores it she doesn't accept it or deny it she just moves on to the next thing if I end up imprisoned and unable to see or call her someone needs to look after Kenzie she's already at the consequences she doesn't she doesn't need the coaching she doesn't need to be told okay you made the right moves here she's made up her mind she's decided to accept the consequences of it and she's already moved on to what the consequences of those consequences are going to be which is kenzie and you're right it's just this really really great moment um it's so she's so aware and and settled and seemingly understanding of what she did and what it means and yeah it's it's great yeah it's very mature yeah yeah for a two-year-old um <laughs> So she goes on telling Victoria that she was angry with Kinsey, uh, not necessarily for the role that she played, but for her attitude. Um, and and she, she's conveying what, uh, what Kinsey had said. She says, I'm not sure, but she was trying to reassure me. She said the situation was bad. There were lots of people hurt. Rain killed Snag. He was almost killed by Cradle. And even she almost killed Mama Mathers. Um, which, by the way, Scott was... Of course, right last week that yeah. that uh, Ashley has the interpretation as as we see here. You think it was intentional to connect, or I don't know. She said it, and I can't get it out of my head. If it was intentional, even if it was accidental, if she killed someone, if she ruined herself like that for something so stupid, or because she was careless, if she's even capable of making that kind of decision. So, 
So yeah, the implication is that Kenzie's desire to connect with people is so strong that she may have tried to kill somebody so that she could connect over it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it seems like my worry over Kenzie pretty, pretty founded after all. Mm-hmm. She did indeed possibly want to join the murder club. And and now we have to go back to how her team was just like telling her of how good of a, a job she did. Right. Like, like, yeah, you got her. You got her good, Kenzie. <laughs> and I love I love that Ashley recognizes this, that 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 murder. Is it like even even justified murder is still a big deal. Even justified murder is, is some sort of of line crossing that you can't go back against. And again, we're going to see this echoed by Sveta in the next chapter a lot. Yeah. And, um, and like the idea that like she's mad at her and she's mad at what she could be capable of. She doesn't even know if this is accurate, but but she sees that she's possibly capable of making that kind of logical leap that I am so concerned about being left out of this thing that these people are are doing things that I can't follow. So I have to catch up. I have to be part of it. Yeah. And, and and the language where she says uh, that, that she would ruin herself like that, and th- yeah. it's, it's so fascinating to hear those words come out of her mouth because she's she's the one who goes on these me- megalomaniacal rants about how she's she's killed people and and tortured them to death, right? And and we see like when she's calm and being her best self, she views that as like a a, a kind of terrible like permanent stain on herself that that she can never you know wash away and and just completely regrets it and um it, it kind of highlights how completely kind of dual her nature is absolutely absolutely it's it's really great i ashley is a fascinating character they're like all these every single one of these characters is so complex and so layered and so deep and we're really just scratching the surface we haven't even fully dove into the implications of all this yet and that's what that's what keeps me wanting to come back and and read every new chapter yeah yeah right thank god thank god mama's not dead that's all i have to say which is something i never thought i would say yeah but thank god yeah uh then we have this bit we walked for a short bit in silence i heard ashley whispering something but it wasn't aimed at me i chose to ignore the whisper in the same way i hoped someone would ignore me communicating something to the wretch um and i i I mainly just pulled that out because it's yet it's just kind of caps off this scene of interactions with Ashley in this beautiful way where she's fully humanized and made sympathetic here and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of almost, almost in, in the space of this scene turned from someone who was winning you over just to someone who has won you over, at least for me. Um, and this moment where she's, she's talking to herself, which absolutely reminds you, the reader and, and even Victoria of, of her struggles to communicate to her shard um, and, and just have some kind of, stable relationship with it if not a positive one yeah. uh, and, and you're just like yeah yeah and, and victoria respects it and it's so heartwarming yeah one of our comments last week um one of the the comments on the reddit thread that we got was when we pointed out that rain was kind of the perfect test case for victoria dealing with the trauma caused to her by amy um, I think it was I think this was Megafire who pointed this out. It said that that this could technically be true of all the misfit toys in their different ways, um, that they could be a, a a representative of the many issues that Victoria faces. 
and I think this is probably a pretty spot on comment. And the 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 early majority part of the book has been focusing on rain, but here we see Ashley is talking to and presumably struggling with her shard. Victoria immediately connects that to her own struggles with the wretch. And I don't want to make this seem like every character in the story is just like um just has to be a reflection of Victoria. I mean, yes, this is Victoria's story. She is the protagonist. It is her story, but they have their own stuff too. Um, they have their own struggles too, and we don't want to lose sight of that. But I think it's so important to watch as Victoria works through each of the struggles of her friends and teammates and like sees the things they're struggling with and, and relates to them and identifies with them, how that reflects back on her own personal issues and her journey through dealing with these things. I think that's really fascinating to look at and she seemingly continuously relates these things back to herself yeah yeah um and then yeah that this is a perfect example of that uh, i think she, she's definitely come around on ashley specifically within this this arc and and sees herself as being a lot more similar where i don't think she would have admitted that even yeah. you know 24 hours prior to this uh this battle yeah and it's at the end of this interaction, Matt, that we finally have Victoria admit something for what seems like the first time. She says, I don't know what's going to happen to the team. I think people are more shaken than they're saying. This isn't how she started the chapter. This is not even what it seemed like was going through with their their happy conversation, everyone congratulating each other thing that just happened before all this. But she's processed it a little more now she's talked to ashley she's heard about kenzie she knows what rain went through victoria seems to finally understand and her response is i don't know what's going to happen to the team and that's a thread that's going to carry through into the next chapter absolutely and and beyond and i love the the end of this whole conversation is her saying good people got really hurt and Ashley responding, bad people got really hurt, too. And she says, yeah, we'll see how that goes. And it's like there's this there's this, the future of the team is now have been brought to the forefront. The future of what they're going to do, if they are what is going to happen to them as a unit is now on everyone's minds for really the first time. And that's going to that's going to carry forward into our next chapter. Yeah, yeah, um, it. Uh, I guess we'll get there pretty soon, but yeah, it's really, really interesting how, how different everyone's uh, position is as we move into the, the, yeah. the, the, the conversation. We're not quite there yet though. Uh, first Ashley and Victoria, they reach uh, Chasmal uh, of advance guard who is accompanying Byron and Vista who are keeping mama sailed, that's sealed away. Um, and I guess something like a pocket dimension type type deal where, she can't affect people, hopefully. Um, and they go over the, the, the general situation uh, with Prancer's group heading back to Hollow Point with some uh, some bodies with them. And the Warden's team apparently will be awaiting them in Hollow Point. So this is uh, the end of Hollow Point, it seems, right? Uh, at least as we know it. They seem pretty confident that they're going to get there. The Wardens are going to make them... Uh, make it known that they're not welcome and they're going to split. And that'll be the end of Hollow Point. Uh, yeah. I did not see things going that way, Matt. It is kind of interesting to see how all this started with with this small plan to just drive these small time crooks out of taking control of this area. And it's ended with this. It's just, it just things happened and not the way I thought they would. 
Yeah, I do wonder if it's going to be that simple for them. I feel like yeah, I feel like uh, Prancer has a destiny here. Yeah, there's there's we've we've spent too many times with too much time with a lot of these characters for them to just kind of disappear off screen. Um, you gotta you gotta get that that moose relationship thing going right. That's what everyone <laughs> yeah everyone wants us to talk about our number one shipping. Yeah, um, I, I I feel like um, Prancer is in such a like dark place right now we don't know what exactly happened but we can kind of guess and i feel like he might not just like leave sullenly when when faced down by the wardens i feel like he might uh try to you know basically become the violent uh uh you know breaking bad cape that he that he could be um yeah i mean we 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 talked back in those chapters about how everyone was saying he doesn't have he doesn't have the 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 desire for violence and the, the willingness to do the worst possible thing that is required of someone to lead this group. And he disagreed, but we talked about how maybe he was starting to be pushed towards that. And if anything, this whole experience probably, probably threw him off that, that cliff. So yeah, yeah right. who knows, who knows what he's going to be now. Right. I mean, whatever horrible things have just happened to him, he he could very well be telling himself that happened because I wasn't, cutthroat enough and yeah. i should have i should have listened i should have listened to bob you know i, I should have been worse than bob maybe you know you can you can imagine this so I'm, I'm interested to see you know next time we see prancer where his uh where his head is at yeah uh yeah so um buried kind of in this conversation uh, byron mentions that he used to make ice yeah, so let's speculate on that a bit, Matt. This is just fun information. Byron's power has shifted from ice to water, and he also kind of hints that there were some other things. Like it wasn't just the only two options were not just ice and water, but we don't have any any data points about that stuff yet, so we can't we can't really speculate on that. Um, yeah. But basically, this is this is the same thing. Ice and water are the same thing, uh, just a a less extreme version. We know that Tristan's power is currently rock, and following that same basic idea, you can make an argument that maybe it used to be more extreme rock, melted rock, lava. Uh, so we have two brothers sharing the same body who, who essentially, if our speculation is correct, at one point had powers on the extreme far side. Um, that is, one was very, very hot, one was very, very cold. And now... They've both kind of come to the center a little bit. Uh, one, the ice warmed up a little bit and became water. The the rock cooled a little bit and became rock. And we've seen Tristan argue that that their shards change themselves based off of their um, their costume, right? That it like it like molded itself based on the the identity they were taking upon, but. This still could be true, but maybe there's more to it to that. Perhaps this is more indicative of like their relationships were on polar extremes opposite of each other. They were in a really bad place in their relationship with each other. And and they've seemingly at least so far gotten to a place where they are, uh, uh, their relationships are better. And maybe the powers reflected that the, the, their, the differences in the powers came a little closer together. And I don't, there's maybe a little more balance there. I don't know. That's a lot of speculation, but yeah. I, I think uh, I think I agree, and I think like a lot of that is subconsciously hitting you. Where 
it, it it seems like if it's literally just the theme, like that their shard like knows what costume they're wearing. I mean, it's it's possible, um, but everything everything always works on more than one level, right? Right. Um, another cool thing I noticed about that dichotomy is that Tristan now has the power to make solid, and and Byron has the power to make liquid. And and before, if we do assume that that uh, Tristan was making lava, then then actually it would have been Byron making solid ice and, and Tristan making liquid lava and, and the um the interaction would have been very different. Of course it might not have been might not have been lava, but uh if it, it they switched solid and, and liquid um yeah, forms yeah. if if you if you go with that assumption. Is is Capricorn one of the people that uh has killed in the past? Is he on that list? I, I think he is. Yeah, I think he is. I think that was that would, that would make sense if you had molten rock power it'd be much it'd be much easier to get people hurt yeah yeah i think moon song refers to him as a murderer yeah you're so, right you're right um and uh as part of this conversation also victoria thinks about calling that therapist again but then immediately forgets about it god damn it <laughs> it's gonna be like the last line of the story <laughs> Yeah. So returning to the main group, Victoria learns that the higher ups are not allowing the pursuit of the escaping Crowley Fallen, which is not really a surprise. Yeah, there's a big there's a big juxtaposition here, right? Because even after all this Victoria talking about, like, I don't know where a group is going to end up. She finishes this entire conversation with, OK, we've got problems, but we can work through them. Um, the, I'm looking after my people. I don't have anyone looking after me. Okay, maybe I should call my therapist, but we got a win here. We won. We took down Veilfor. We took down Mama Mathers. Um, this is a win, a win that we earned. Go us. And then we immediately cut to, sorry, we rejected your offer. So we've gone, we've gone from a high to a low almost immediately. She's talked herself into a point where she can, she can give herself credit for the win. And then we immediately cut to, no. Um, you lose. We're not going to help you. You're on your own. And I think that's that's a great juxtaposition there. That kind of shows the the roller coastering of emotions and and kind of where the where things are going to go from here. Yeah, especially since as we were saying before, she's kind of in a place where she needs to she needs to be resting. You know, she needs she needs medical care, and right. instead instead of any kind of self care, she's just throwing herself forward yet again. Yep. So yeah, they learn that the Crowleys will be in the Megalopolis in two hours. Victoria gives up on convincing the patrol block leaders and gathers her full team, including Rain. They all meet in the school bus where Rain is kind of sheltering, um, and she prepares to ask Rain if he's willing to let Cradle go. Yeah, and this is this is when we start to talk about compromise, right? Uh, this is one of the big things we see at the end of this chapter, and and I think it'll it'll follow into our next one. What are you willing to compromise to get what you want? Victoria, are you willing to deal with Tattletale, the person you hate, to get what you want? Each member of the team, are you willing to, are you willing to um, betray the, uh, the rules and the regulations and the things you've set yourself up to get what you want? Each member of the team has been forced to deal with that, and they've, some of them have fucked up. They've blown holes in chests. They've dropped cameras on people's head they've compromised in some places and then i think we get the biggest the biggest compromise of all here rain you hate the fallen you hate what they've done to you they're out there and they're going to do it to someone else we're convinced of this 
We can get people to help us stop them, but all you have to do is compromise your personal safety. Cradle will go free. This guy that is going to kill you. And as much as Tattletail reassures Victoria that she'll keep him away from rain, no, don't worry about it. I'll keep him away. We know better. We've seen these guys. Cradle maybe will go away for a little bit, but he's going to hunt rain again. He's never going to stop hunting rain. That's that's their whole thing. So so we leave this chapter on this big question. Is is rain willing to compromise his own safety for for others? And that's kind of how we start the next one. Yeah, the, the whole next one, if anything, is is the process of, of working toward the point where uh, where he, he can ask the question that he needs to ask to really make up his mind here, which is, right. you know, Tattletale, you need to explain yourself in more detail than just, oh, I'll handle it because you've demonstrated that you can't handle it. You didn't right. handle it. You failed to handle it. OK, yep. so don't just say you're going to handle it. Yeah, to make this choice, you need you need all the data. Yeah, <laughs> it's too it's too big of a choice. Yeah, so we open six point seven, and yeah, the team has joined Rain. Victoria considers what bad shape everyone is in, physically and or mentally, and she reaches for a memory that she can use as a touchstone to compare with how Rain is probably feeling right now, settling on the moment of being made normal after Gold Morning. Victoria, that's something we kind of hinted at. A little bit ago, but something I don't think we talk about very much. One of the big traits of Victoria is this this need, this desire to empathize with people. She will look at people, she will analyze how they're feeling, and then she will search for a memory that relates to that in her own experience to to allow her to empathize, empathize with that feeling. And she says so rather explicitly here she says i wanted to draw on my own experience to empathize with him and better know what to do but she even admits i didn't have great experiences to draw on but this is something that that she doesn't always she doesn't always state it this explicitly but she does it all the time she is constantly comparing things that everyone goes through to her own experiences and i think that's a thing that human beings do generally but i think victoria is more tuned to it than a lot of people are um and 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 seeks it out when other people would maybe just like automatically subconsciously do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I, well, I mean, we've, we've noticed many times that she, she has learned all these therapeutic tricks of, of introspection, basically just, she, she has a pretty, pretty wide introspective toolkit and, and different ways of relating to people and, and group therapy, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So there's this funny beat here where a damsel misuses a word uh, because she's again two years old, and Chris <laughs> corrects her, and then Damsel is basically like, "Shut up!" Yes, yeah. I, I just like that back and forth. Oh, little Damsel, little clone. Yeah. Um. So this is when I really started to wonder, and this is a a very non well formed speculation, but I'm really starting to wonder how old Chris actually is, and I'm curious if you are because. We've got all these little little bits and pieces of evidence. We've got the, the connection to Rachel, who is someone much older than him. Um, he, the constant complaining about being treated like a kid. Like we, we, we hammered home this beat about how much he hates the idea that people hold their swear words in front of him. Like it drives him crazy. He won't stop complaining about this. In the middle of conversations, it's like, stop, just swear in front of me. Um, and then we get this little thing where like, He's he's like 
correcting someone else's grammar. And it's it's like it's not all these things separate might just be like an identification of just who Chris is as a person. But all this stuff together, like I'm just getting to a point where I'm like, it's not too outlandish to think that maybe his change of form like made it so he stopped growing, like his physical form like stopped changing and he's just stuck in the body of this kid. And I don't know. I I don't know if there's enough evidence to really support that, but I said it. So now it's, it's on recording. Yeah. I, I think I had had the same thought, but it was like a, it was like a fleeting thought while I was reading at one point and I didn't, it didn't like stick as something that I, that I needed to tell anyone. Um, so I, I kind of dropped the ball there, but yeah, like I, it's, I, I had the same thought that he, he, he like may return to his default body at the moment of his trigger event when he, uh, uh, when he, uh, changes back to himself. Um, and maybe uh, I had the second, second thought that like, maybe this has something to do with the form that he goes into where he like comes apart and doesn't come back together. Um, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but it seems, <laughs> I, I think, uh, we've noticed many times that he has the like erudition of someone much older, like an 11 year old, even a bookish 11 year old, I'm not sure he's going to be able to know that many words. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's definitely the kind of thing that makes you suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. He's, he's smart. Like he tends to act like an annoying kid at times. Um, but maybe that could just be, he's acting like an annoying person and we're just assigning the childish immatureness of it to him because he is, is being portrayed as a child right now. So yeah. yeah, yeah right. Uh, something to think about at least so victoria uh as she kind of reaches out to rain she says i get it i've been there you want to watch out for the moments where you're trying to reconcile the disconnect and make the now feel real again it's easy to get carried away um just just the like the language how she phrases it um i just love this this sentiment because she's communicating all the complex stuff that's going on in her head and she communicates it in a way that I think is very elegant. Yeah, I'm kind of in love with it. Yeah. Um, and then she she talks about how this reflected in her, this ability to take really extreme temperature showers, either really hot or really cold, um, which is something we actually have seen her do before or seen her mention before, at least. And then she talks about scrubbing her skin till it's raw, which is new information for us, I think. And yeah as a general rule they're both relating to this idea that something so bad so traumatic happened to me that just feeling normal like feeling just alive is so weird that i just can't believe it and that's one of the big th- it's one of the big parts of ptsd isn't it i mean that's one of the things it does to you and it's like i think i think we need to keep track of this and see because I was trying to think back and see, has Victoria acted like this way that we've seen in the book so far? Has she kind of jumped into something to make her to make her life feel real um, since the, the book started? Because um, she doesn't think of any of those moments. And I couldn't come up with anything specific. So I didn't want to I didn't want to say because I wasn't 100 percent sure. But it might just be something we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I don't think she's framed it this way specifically, but like you mentioned, she did have that like extremely long hot shower at one point. Uh, we've definitely noticed the fact that she kind of keeps putting herself into these Cape Combat situations, uh, which do make her feel like positive things and, and useful. 
and uh, it's it's it makes her feel better, but it may not actually be healthy for her. We're we, we're not sure yet. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So she she also emphasizes to Rain that he should talk to Mrs. Yamada about all this, despite the fact that she hasn't followed her own advice to reach out to the new therapist. Yeah, the old uh, do as I say, not as I do routine, which is one that Victoria falls back on a lot. Like she's positioned herself as the coach of these guys and she's doling out advice and, and using her experiences to help them, which is great. Do that. You've been through a lot and you found a way to live with a lot. But you've got a lot of issues, girl. Yeah. <laughs> and and you need someone to do that to you. And you're like so focused in helping these people that you're not even paying attention to your own. And she remembers that every, every so often she becomes conscious of that every so often, but then just kind of moves on because she's the next thing, the next person to help. Right. Yeah, exactly. So rain shares information with them about the Crowleys, who they are, what they're about. Um, and basically everyone wants to understand what level of risk is really going to come with the Crowleys being free and pissed off and what it would be worth to try and stop them. So Rain also mentions that he was originally a McVeigh um, and, and he says there's a mystery there with the Crowleys because they're latecomers of the fallen system. The other families don't really respect them. Uh, but they brought the firepower today, and Rain recognizes uh, that, that the self-proclaimed jackasses can be some of the scariest people around. And he recalls parents would tell soldiers to stay away from these loons that have probably never seen a fight. Yeah, so we're getting a, a pretty good picture of this part of the family that we've never seen before. Um, so th it's funny because these are really dramatically different from the Mathers-esque brainwashed fallen we've seen up until this point. And, and it gets you wondering, are they worse? Like, so we have here, we have here like two, two different examples of extremist philosophy, right? The, the, the fallen, the Mathers fallen believe and either because they're brainwashed or they're brainwashed by powers or just been brainwashed by, cult methods they believe in the things that they're doing and they strongly believe and like they, uh, a Mathers Fallen sets a building on fire because he wants to convert people it seems like from what we understand of the Crowleys now specifically the jackasses uh, a Crowley Fallen would set a building on fire just because they thought it was funny and I wonder what the book is is going to explore at the difference in these two kind of extremist philosophies and uh, which it says can and will be more dangerous to the world at large. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was basically the, the 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 fallen in general seem to be some kind of exploration of powers interacting with masses of people following in like a mob like fashion. Right. And and as you just indicated, there's there's a lot of forms that that takes. Um, they're all really bad, and maybe some of them are worse in some ways than others. Uh, but yeah, I think we're about to see a, a whole different brand of heinous shit happening. Right. Um, yeah, maybe maybe trying to balance like which is more bad is the wrong way to go because it's like they're all bad. I don't want to. I don't want to be like, hey, look, turns out the Mathers weren't so bad. No. Definitely, definitely not true. But yeah, I, I think you're right. The explorations of all the different forms and ways in which this kind of 
establishment and and uh, extremist philosophy can take and what that leads to. Right. So at this point, Aaron enters the bus, interrupting the conversation. Uh-oh. And uh, she says, uh, sorry, Sveta says, do you guys want to be alone? And then, sure, Rain said at the same time, Aaron said, no. The tension in the pause that followed was almost physical. And uh, you have to imagine the the gif of Ralph Wiggum with his heart ripping in half here. Yeah, if you if you go into slow motion, you can almost see the exact moment in which his heart rips in half. Yeah. Right. That's that's pretty much this whole scene. Yeah. Because um, Aaron thanks him for saving her family and apologizes for being horrible to him. And then she asks if they can go back to being friends. Um, and he's like, yeah, friends. Uh, and then he invites her to stay with him on the bus for a bit. But she excuses herself. Uh, yeah, I want to read this, Matt, because it's I'm a glutton for punishment. Yeah. But I think the writing here is actually really fantastic. And it's worth it's worth singling out. Um so Rain says, that night was the kind of night that's horrible no matter what. Wasn't you. Let's pretend it never happened. I'd like that, she said. Can we go back to being friends? Friends, Rain said. Yeah, of course. Come sit. Keep us company. These guys are going to leave so- soon and I'll be bored like this. I, she stared. Bryce did get a bit hurt. I was about to check up on him. I'll, I'll visit properly later. Okay. The one word from Rain sounded anything but. I think that the the sentence construction at last one is really fantastic. The one word from Rain sounded anything but. You completely get the idea that this he's Rain has been through shit. He's just sliced up. He's like his wounds are like in an alternate dimension while he's <laughs> got like like and and yet this seems to sting more than any of it. And yeah. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah, it's funny. I, I kind of forgot that we that we needed resolution on the Aaron plot line because that yeah. was, which like that was such an emotional gut punch, you know, back back when back when right. that happened and, and he escaped and and she still hadn't said anything nice to him up until basically up until basically now. Um and, yeah. and it, it basically took him almost dying for her to for i want to say forgive him i guess but just kind of like come around really yeah but in the in the the example of the worst kind of knife twisting like he was forced to make this decision and choose between her or being a fallen he said he couldn't be a fallen he he chose he said no to her and there's this feeling of okay you've lost her forever now and then no um she goes through this experience and and she he participates and it gets her away from the fallen and 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 maybe maybe as she pokes her head into this bus maybe there's hope for him now maybe he can get there finally that that this is her coming because not because she's being brainwashed or not because she's being forced into the situation maybe there's hope for these two of them and then knife turn and no sorry sorry but it is heroic because he did he he saved her and he saved her family. He did what yeah. he thought was basically impossible. Absolutely. And and as we'll see in a second, he is still thinking of her even even in this moment. This is not this is not the 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 nice guy getting friend zoned that's going that that like is going to turn on her and hate her. This is not this is not that. 
Right, because immediately her her presence here reminds Rain that Cradle might use her and her family against him. Um, And it's a strike against the idea of letting Cradle go for him uh, beyond the fact that Cradle wants to kill him. Yeah, and that's that's the rub, isn't it? When we originally constructed this argument, Rain's compromise here was, um, yes, I want to take down the Fallen. Am I willing to risk myself, my safety? But it's more complicated than that. And I think Rain's right here that Cradle and Love Loss would kill every single person that is standing between them and Rain. Um, and they would use the people that he cares about to get to him. They absolutely would do that. That's really, it's really justice. That's what justice is. Uh-huh. Uh, Cradle, that's totally justice. Um, but I mean, he's right. They would do that. I, I have seen nothing in their behavior that indicates that they would not be willing to do that. And I think I think this is a point towards Rain as a legitimate reformed person, a, a person who has legitimately understood the terrible things that they've done and is striving to be that better person um, mm-hmm. because he is once again putting other people ahead of himself in his concern. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um. So at this point, Sveta makes a pitch. She points out that the team, such as it is, is in shambles, uh, with multiple killings and an almost killing. Yep. Um, fascinating exchange here. Ashley speaking. Saving those people wouldn't mitigate that. There aren't scales that balance because you take one life and save another. If you take lives, you are a murderer, and nothing wipes that slate clean. That's not true, Kenzie said. I know that, Ashley, Sveta said, upset. That's not what what I'm saying at all. Um, and <laughs> there's there's so much here. So first of all, Ashley is espousing this this view that is very relevant to our conversation uh, uh, to, to our to our discussion question of yeah of she's basically saying like yeah no there's there's not a there's not a balance that's that's a fiction. If you kill someone, you you will have always done that. You can't you can't undo that. And then Kinsey's who who is the who is the kid here says says this that's not true and then Sveta is like yes obviously that is true and they basically both just ignore Kenzie and no no one actually no one actually engages Kenzie on it the two older women are both just like yeah this is a given but that's not the and then Sveta is like that's not what that's not what I'm trying to say yeah. um and overall I thought that was a really interesting exchange yeah and that's the start of uh their attitude toward Kenzie that's going to continue throughout this because Kenzie is not dealing with any of this conversation. Well, the direction this conversation is going is not, is not good for her. And we pull that out and exemplify that by the fact that they're either ignoring her, um, which is something that she hates or they're immediately shutting her down. She says something and they're like, no, Kenzie, that's wrong. Yeah. Um, and that continues throughout this entire argument that we're going to see here. And, and, that is so important to the mindset of our characters, the mindset of Kenzie, like, and and this is how the writing is demonstrating that. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but so it turns out what Svet is really trying to say is that she doesn't, she doesn't want the team to continue with this black mark, this, this terrible sequence of events, um, lurking over them. Yeah. And that's when we realize that the conversation we're having here is Svet is saying, the team's over. 
Um, and, and it's not even just that she doesn't want to continue. I think it is definitely that. But she also says, how does it continue? She, how, how do we go from here? How do we go on from here? People have killed people. And Sveta, more than anyone, knows how serious that is, um, That knows that there will be consequences for that. And even Rain here points out con- the consequences are pending or interrupted, but they are coming. They're, they're going to be here. And that's like, that's one of, I think the more intelligent realizations of her. And, and she kind of, she kind of whiplashes you in this conversation, right? Because you think she's going to, or she, you think she's calling out right now. We need to disband this team. Like yeah. this is, we, this is what we need to do. Um, this isn't going the way we wanted it to. Things are bad. This thing needs to end. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. You, you expect her to be quitting. Like this is her quitting, right. but right. But not quite. Um, Chris tries to make the point that all of the people who died were bad. <laughs> and this is one of those times that I'm just going to let my own personal biases show through blatantly here. Um, because I think Sveta's response to that is just perfect. Yeah. Let's just kill every asshole. That'd be great. The heroes just killing all the assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, I agree. Um, so so Kinsey is very upset at all this talk of disbanding the team. She's she's almost just like completely in denial. Yeah, and it's just like it's just like no no no. And and you know she has a lot of writing on this. We've hit this beat many times. We know we know this. It's not surprising to see this reaction, but it it is it is heartbreaking to see it. Yeah, yeah, it 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 is. And I think like like we talked about above uh, a few minutes ago that the writing does a great job of drawing our attention to this and really pushing this to the forefront um she has no control over what's happening because they're either ignoring her or shutting her down she's she's outside of this whole conversation and that is a thing for kenzie that drives her the most crazy and there's nothing she can do like we get beats here where ashley says she's turning herself in kenzie says no to that she sees all the stuff slipping away from her and there's nothing she can do here yeah, right. Yeah. Like you said, Ashley tells her tells everyone that she's cooperating with the authorities and then she actually thinks incarceration might be a relief. Oh. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, this is this is really rough. I've been waiting for it for a long time, I think is what she says about incarceration. I've been waiting for it for a long time. So, I find myself really torn here, Matt, because I agree that there should be consequences for what Ashley did. She killed the guy. Uh, Sveta says due process that that she just wants due process. And I agree, but Ashley was created to be bad. Bonesaw made her that way. The shard reinforces that behavior. She was created to be a monster, but she isn't one or she doesn't want to be. She wants to be better. But it's a constant struggle for her. It's a battle against her very nature at times. That's why we see her talking to herself, almost like talking her shard down. And so existing in this world for Ashley is living in a state of one moment, one push, one bad thing is is just one little moment away from going nuts and possibly killing a person. And that's got to be exhausting. She can never relax. She can never be calm. So prison to her would be a relief because it's the end of all that. 
she she would possibly not be in danger of hurting people anymore, but it would be also kind of giving in to the bad side of her, admitting that that's just who she is, that that this is she's the bad guy. She's the bad guy she was created to be. And now she's in prison for it. And that's what she deserves. And I don't want that because I don't I'm not giving up on her yet. I don't want that. Like she she clearly is a person that can and is trying really hard to to ditch that the person that she was built to be. And I don't want her to give up on herself yet. So, yeah, there should be consequences. There should be she should be punished for the things she's done. But I don't want if if prison is the thing that gives her relief because it 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 she it's, it is her giving up. Then no, no, no. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't I don't even know if she. Well, she probably she needs consequences just because without consequences that's a that's a bad signal um to her and to everyone else um but clearly she needs more help and, and more ways of controlling herself because like the thing that the thing that caused her to to blow the to blow bob away like that could happen like at any in any cave fight that that kind yeah. of thing anyway so yeah. she she can't be in the field fighting until she has dealt with that part of herself that that's and and just going to prison doesn't help that it doesn't help with that at all it doesn't repair that right aspect of her right the easy thing to do the relaxing thing to do is so often not the right thing to do yeah. so yeah she needs consequences she needs help but but going going just being thrown in a cell and forgotten about i don't no ashley you don't get that i'm sorry life isn't fair yeah right um, yeah, so so as we've been alluding to, Sveta's actual point is more surprising. She thinks that uh, before they disband as a group, they should try to stop this bad thing from happening with the Crowleys. Yeah, um, so this is, I think, we've been talking about Sveta is like the constant optimist, the, the one that always wants to see the glass half full, the one that is always looking for the silver lining everywhere. And I think this is the... Um, extreme bad case of that <laughs> because she can't she sees this thing as over she said this is over like there uh, people have killed people there's going to be consequences for that we're all falling apart rain is barely alive this is over but we can't let it end on a bad thing because to her the world has to be getting better Things have to be better tomorrow than they were today. And the only way to make that possible is that this thing that they did has to end on a good note. And I think she's even right in her thing, in her argument to Ashley, that this is not about balancing any scales. This is just about um, making things good, making like ending positively. And so she's going, she's going just demanding that they go forward into this thing that is contradictory to the argument she seemingly just made. Yeah. I, like Sveta has a very weird perspective and some very, very particular uh, biases here actually, because, mm -hmm. and she's been explicit before about the fact that she's kind of anchored on what happened with the irregulars and how that team broke apart and became violent. And it, it was, it, she's, not only does she have trauma from being, you know, a tentacle monster who killed tons and tons of people accidentally, but 
she probably also has trauma from what happened in the cauldron base where people who she thought were friends tried to kill her. She probably killed some of them for all we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, it was a, it was kind of a nightmare, honestly. You know, we, we saw that whole scene from Taylor's perspective where nothing is really a nightmare to Taylor. She just kind of operates like a, <laughs> like a Terminator, um, through, <laughs> through most situations like that. But like, you know, it forces me to be like, yeah, okay. Some, some really bad things have happened. Some people have been killed. Some people have been maimed, but like, Compare this to when the Undersiders and the Travelers were fighting the Nine. No one, no one was like, "Oh, we've we've damaged our souls too much by killing a couple of the Nine. It, it, it's like that. They were just like, "Yeah, good, good. We killed them." Right. Yeah. And 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 like I, I don't know. You could you could I think you could make the argument that people like Valefor and Mama Mathers are in the same part of the ballpark as, as the Nine in terms of just being monsters. So yeah. I feel like I've, I've I've sort of improvised this devil's advocate argument for like, why exactly does the team need to break up just because you did violence when you were doing cape stuff and then you fought and defended yourself against really bad people and then some of them got hurt, like it 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 doesn't it doesn't quite scan as like like what did you think you were getting into in the first place if this is enough to break you up I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, I think her her image of what this team would be was never, was never an this. accurate one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're probably right. So. Well, yeah. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So so they <laughs> they uh, they agree or, or, or Sveta's position is actually, hey, we should we should coordinate some of the people in power that we know to try to intervene with the Crowleys. Uh, but we're not going to do anything ourselves. We're just going to coordinate people. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, we're we're totally just going to the other groups are going to do it. We're not going to get involved. We'll just help 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 them out. Uh this sounds really familiar. Hmm. How did Oh yeah, this is what your whole fucking plan was to begin with. <laughs> and that went right out the window the second fighting started. Right. And everyone including you Sveta rushed in to help. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the team explicitly points out at this point how contradictory Tattletale's apparent behavior has been. Uh, they agree that they want to confront her about it to understand it. Victoria then looks at the boy who had forecast so much of this, uh, which is appears to be Byron, um, mm-hmm. who she's crediting for having understood the instability latent in the group. Yeah, uh, Byron, who, who said this whole thing was a bad idea and would end in death, uh, totally... Totally on point, buddy. The The interesting thing about Byron being here, though, is that we're seeing everyone's kind of response to this whole thing. We're seeing Kenzie's. We're seeing Sveta's. Um, Victoria is kind of processing through this stuff. Chris is offering his insights. But because it's Byron and not Tristan, we don't see how Tristan is feeling about all this because Byron is the type of person that's just going to sit back and listen. He's not going to jump into the conversation. I wonder how differently this whole thing would have gone if Tristan was there. Yeah, I agree. Um, Tristan would have had more to say, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Tristan actually talks a lot uh, and has a lot and, and pushes people and has to restrain himself from doing that. Yeah, he Byron, tries to take command of the conversation. Yeah, so that's a great point I hadn't considered. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and then the chapter more or less ends with uh, um, she's been she's been kind of toying with these little spiky decorations on her on her uh 
costume and, and says, uh, my hand moved and the crown moved with it. I'd exerted too much pressure and the point of the spike had pierced the bed of my finger with red blood welling up and a droplet tracing its way down the spike. I donned the glove, the fabric serving to cover the small puncture wound. So yeah, she's accidentally pricked her finger on her own costume and then covers up the wound. Yeah, and if you were feeling pretty unsure about the the conversation and the plan forming around this conversation around the characters right now, this ending imagery should should lead you right to a place of extreme worry about this team because we have Sveta arguing for one last job like a like a heist guy trying to do one last heist like a gambler trying to win it all back with one more hand <laughs> we're definitely going to get blackjack on this one we should quit definitely we've lost a lot of money but one more hand we're going to get even <laughs> And and that'll be that always works out, right? Always works out. Yeah, that's how and the then, universe works. Yeah, and then we tie it together with this imagery of the wound and the costume. And the thing that caused the wound, her very costume, is the same thing that covers it up. This glove, this costume, this this parahuman, this team coming together, doing this thing has wounded all of them. They've exerted too much pressure and it's left them in a bad shape. People have been killed. People were almost killed. They're hurt physically, mentally, emotionally. They're bleeding. And what's the solution? Go to a doctor, bandage the wound, seek help. No. Put the glove back on. Be a cape again. One last mission. Cover up that wound and assume that it's all healed. That is their decision. Yeah. Just don't look at it. Don't think about it. Yep. And that is terrifying. Yeah. It's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. No, it's not. So yeah, the elements of the team that can be mobile now travel to meet the Undersiders, as if that wasn't ominous enough, uh, via Vista uh, Transit Airlines. Um, Victoria's description of the location that they meet at emphasizes the art and graffiti painted over the concrete architecture. Yeah, and I think there's two ways to look at graffiti. You can see it as, as blemishes on an otherwise perfect surface, or you can see it as artwork, personalization, a sign of life and civilization, of ownership of a place. And it seems like Tattletale agrees with the latter. Yeah, that's that's Victoria's interpretation that that it's it's tattle or at least she interprets it that way as it being yeah. Tattletale is the one who al- allows this to to persist. Um, yeah, which may be giving Tattletale too much like agency over and, and authority over what things look like in her territory. But uh, mm-hmm. may, maybe she's right. Maybe Victoria's right. Uh, yeah. So the full contingent of core undersiders and the undersiders henchmen are present, um, and pretty promptly. Victoria demonstrates great sensitivity and tact by saying, yeah, I really do appreciate this. I know it's a really difficult thing acting halfway decent. Do make sure you, sure you keep pointing it out anytime you do it and gloss over <laughs> the parts where there's tacit manipulation or something in it for you. Um, I really love full-on aggressive, sarcastic Vicky here. Got her. Speaking of manipulation, um, prominently in the scene are, are Perry and, and, and Foyle, um, who are the people who she has seduced to the dark side, um, which I think is, is sort of what 
sort of what Tattletail is doing here because she's she's been she's definitely been applying her her seduction techniques uh, to to Victoria, I think, and they certainly haven't been working very well. But I, I think there's a good case to be made that Tattletail would really love to have her and and her misfit toys uh, as allies and perhaps subordinates. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so so Victoria, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a great burn. Um, I love that. Immediately after Victoria goes on her little rant, Capricorn kind of leans in and is like, um, "Are you sure that you can take point on this one?" Because <laughs> like it's that that's how immediately aggressive she's being. And again, we have to link back to our conversation before about how she's now up against a person who is is frustrating her, and her initial reaction is to get really really mad about it and kind of lash out a little bit yeah. and not be political. But but she she basically in, insists that this is the right way to deal with Tattletail. She's like she's like yeah, yeah. I'm okay I'm I, I got this Capricorn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Victoria tells Tattletail, no, this won't be the conversation she expected. Uh, she doesn't need to explain herself to Victoria. She needs to explain herself to Rain. And with that, Kenzie's uh, projector brings Rain into the setting via telepresence. And I just have to read this whole section. Rain animated, the image glitching in the moment before it caught up. Now he appeared like he was in the plaza with us, the occasional scan line or glitch marking him for the projected image he was. Luxie's camera had captured the images of the wounds, the slashes, the cuts and cleaves, the parts where skin peeled away, the simulated blood. It simulated the blood. She'd even captured the background sound, the ragged, rough breathing, like each inhalation and exhalation was an effort. This was a legit holy shit moment yeah. like i the to to turn the manipulation engine on against the biggest manipulator was just like jaw-droppingly amazing yeah um i was just like oh i had never even like that's not something i would ever have thought of doing yeah. <laughs> it, like and it's so it's so great yeah, it's it's a great tactic because not only does uh you know, she's pulling a tattletale on tattletale, um and and she not only is she getting under Tattletail's skin by showing her this and appealing to her humanity, which she does have, but she's also kind of alienating Tattletail's teammates, some of whom are much more sensitive than she is. Yeah. Uh, by showing them this. Um so there's she there's a lot that she's done here. You know, she 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 then, you know, she infers that Tattletail wanted people to snap out of it and and not do this whole bloody attack. She wanted them to play the old cops and robbers game. And we know that's true of Tattletale. She does want that. But Tattletale made a big mistake by assuming that they would do so. They'd play, they'd play along. They'd listen. Um, and related to that, she's inferred that Tattletale can't read multi-triggers very well. Uh, which compounded the mistake because she probably thought that she had more of a handle on Cradle and, and, and Love Lost and, and Snag uh, than she actually did. And... That led to things getting much worse than she thought they would get. Yeah. And so this is kind of part of the truth behind her seemingly inconsistent behavior we've seen over these last few chapters. So these answers to was Tattletale playing a long con? Was she manipulating people against each other? Was she doing her four dimensional chess stuff? Yeah, probably. But she fucked up. Yeah. And and she fucked up big. 
and the inconsistencies, the contradictory behavior, um, the the aggressiveness, uh, the riskiness. That was her guilt fucking with her a little bit. Yeah. And I love how we've been talking about this idea of cops and robbers throughout the last two arcs. We've been talking about this idea of the game. And we've been talking about it in regards to Victoria. This is something Victoria wanted to come back. Um, she wanted to frame everything around her around this. And we framed that entire conversation around her. And we forgot who in the story was the one that came up with the term. Who in the story was the one that defined the game to us, the reader, for the first time? Who seemed to believe in its existence more than any other character in the entirety of that whole other book we read? I forgot about that person. Yeah. It's yeah. Tattletale. Of the, course, it's Tattletale. This this scene here had that feeling of like, oh, I forgot that Tattletale was the same character. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. That, that's, that is what perception and point of view does because Victoria sees Tattletale as this master manipulator that is always lying, always untruthful, always trying to... Sc- to screw you over yeah. and manipulate you into a thing. And we forgot about Lisa. Yeah. And the, the person fact that she screws up. Right. The person that, uh, the Lisa that is, that we saw was so exhausted. She was barely sleeping from using her power so much. The Lisa who is, if she asks the wrong question and relies on the wrong answer, it can lead her down a path of wrong answers. The Lisa that is making up half of the shit she's telling people uh, to use the, the, the knowledge of her power to her advantage as well as the power. We forgot about that person. And here we see at the beginning of this conversation in which Tattletale is hopefully going to reveal a lot of the other stuff she was working on. We see her as Lisa, the not infallible mastermind. We see her as the the person that we knew so well from that other story. Yeah. And man, perception, point of view, these things have effects on you. Yeah. This little scene is beautiful because Victoria points out that when they arrive, they're outnumbered three to one. But you can't help but feel that at the end of this chapter the misfit toys have the upper hand in this, in this exchange. Yeah. It's like in seven. Yeah. He tells the chopper to go away because that's right. Fuck. Kevin Spacey ruined that movie too. (laughs) Damn it. I know. Sorry. All right. So that wraps up, uh, part, part three or, or chapter, chapter seven, seven. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter seven of, uh, Arc six pitch. Um, let's move on into a little bit of name game. So, so here's one, Scott, that I think you and I have have actually thought about quite a bit. And, and once we once we realized we should do this one, we were we were pretty excited about it. So, this one is uh, Victoria Dallin. Oh, so, Victoria! What does that name mean? So what? So if you were someone who was sort of obsessed with with success. And um, we're very career oriented, both in your in your day job and in your life as a as a superhero, and wanted to be someone who was in charge of a of a of a cape family, and and but furthermore was very controlling and needed things to to always win and always go your way. You you could say that you have a preoccupation with with winning, and uh, yeah. What's another word? Is um, it vic 
Victor. Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. No, and it's such a it's such a classic Carol thing to do, right? Like yeah. it's so like I never really stop and thought about naming your your child Victoria. Uh, is such a a coach mom thing to do because <laughs> it's not like it's not like it's a bad name, right? But it, it's no. it, it's it's a name that you select if you're like envisioning a life of glory and success for your child, right? Um, right. On some level, I wonder if we're ever gonna get to see. If it was Victoria that came up with the name Glory Girl or not, or how much how much of that was her, how much of that was Carol's influence, you know, like it it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. If if part of that was her mom's influence. Yeah, I mean, you could make a case that the reason she got the power she did in the first place was due to that, the nature of her trauma true. being caused by her mom's nature. So so yeah, that is very true. Yeah, it's very true. So yeah. Uh, we're we're probably missing some level on which Victoria is a great name, but uh, that's one of them. Yeah, tell us the other ones. Yeah, all right. So this week's discussion question is: Should the Misfit Toys or whatever you want to call them call it quits, disband, give up? What do you guys? Why? Think? Why or why not? And why? What yes. do you think? What yeah. do you think? And that's all we have for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at glorygirl, oddly enough. Yeah, that's shocking. Yeah. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to a podcast. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at DailyPlanetFilms.com. This week, Vow to View celebrates Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day here in the U.S. this weekend, so we're watching our mommy's favorite movies. And also, uh, Weaver Dice is coming. Hope, Hopefully. Oh, it's hopefully. coming. It's coming. It's yeah. coming. And if, uh, if you like these shows and you want to support them consider donating to our patreon account patreon.com slash daily planet films you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford uh, supporting us on patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests uh, q a sessions access to live streams of our recording sessions uh, and our excellent and lively discord chat special thanks to new uh, planeteers sartek matthew Charlie and Greg, all at the $1 level. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbow's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbow, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to iTunes and leaving us a rating and a review. You can be like our spotlight reviewer this week who comes all the way from the United Kingdom. Semi-Canon gives us five stars and says, Extremely insightful. This series explores the themes and characters of Worm and Ward in a way that is both entertaining and educational. Not only do I have a much greater understanding of both stories than I did before I listened, but I feel the series has taught me more about writing in general than many podcasts that are specifically about writing. Wow. I highly recommend this to any fan of Wild Bo's work, and if you haven't read Worm yet, the quality of this podcast should be the final push you need to do so. Wow, that is a compliment. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I've definitely learned more from doing this podcast than uh, than I have from most anything else. So 
I appreciate is, I appreciate that other people get something out of it too. Yeah, that is true. I, I've said this before. Um, all of our international reviews come to us in like one large batch at the beginning of the month. So if you're not from the States and you've left us a review and we haven't read it yet, that's why we just got them all last week. Uh, but th- this one hit as part of our April batch last Thursday. And it's like, Matt, I always get like a nice gift wrap present at the beginning of the month. That's just like two to three international reviews that are so amazing. And it certainly feels lovely when they're as nice as this one is. So thank you, Semi-Canon. Uh, I'm glad we helped you understand these great books a little more. Cheers. All right, uh, that's it for the show this week. Remember to check out the first session of our Weezer Dice campaign as soon as it drops, and we'll see you next week for part four of Arc 6 Pitch. Hey. Hey. Hey.